Welcome again to The Mayorzine, an audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction, curated and, at this point, exclusively narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. And I'm still using my radio voice, and eventually this will sound natural, I promise. Halfway to Halloween, and this week we shall hear a charming fable about how the pumpkin came to be. Believe me, it's not what you expect. It's by Mary Wilkins Freeman, who began writing and selling children's stories in her teens to help out her family, and was quickly quite successful. You can look her up on Wikipedia for a basic summary, but I would very much like to learn more about her now, and you can be sure to hear her name and stories again on this podcast. So let's now join a king, a princess, a little common boy, his brave father, and a frightful giant, the Pumpkin Giant. A very long time ago, before our grandmother's time, or our great-grandmothers, or our grandmothers with a very long string of greats prefixed, there were no pumpkins. People had never eaten a pumpkin pie or even stewed pumpkin. And that was the time when the pumpkin giant flourished. There have been a great many giants who have flourished since the world began. And although a select few of them have been good giants, the majority of them have been so bad that their crimes even more than their size have gone to make them notorious. But the pumpkin giant was an uncommonly bad one, and his general appearance and his behavior were such as to make one shudder to an extent that you would hardly believe possible. The convulsive shivering caused by the mere mention of his name and in some cases where the people were unusually sensitive, by the mere thought of him even, more resembled the blue ague than anything else. Indeed, was known by the name of the Giant's Shakes. The pumpkin giant was very tall. He probably would have overtopped most of the giants you have ever heard of. I don't suppose the giant who lived on the beanstalk whom Jack visited was anything to compare with him nor that it would have been a possible thing for the pumpkin giant had he received an invitation to spend an afternoon with the beanstalk giant to accept on account of his inability to enter the beanstalk giant's door, no matter how much he stooped. The pumpkin giant had a very large yellow head, which was also smooth and shiny. His eyes were big and round and glowed like coals of fire, and you would almost have thought that his head was lit up inside with candles. Indeed, there was a rumor to that effect amongst the common people. But that was all nonsense, of course. No one of the more enlightened class credited it for an instant. His mouth, which stretched half around his head, was furnished with rows of pointed teeth, and he was never known to hold it any other way than wide open. The pumpkin giant lived in a castle as a matter of course. It is not fashionable for a giant to live in any other kind of a dwelling. Why, nothing would be more tame and uninteresting than a giant in a two-story white house with green blinds and a picket fence or even a brownstone front, if he could get into either of them, which he could not. The giant's castle was situated on a mountain, as it ought to have been, and there was also the usual courtyard before it and the customary moat, which was full of bones. All I have got to say about these bones is they were not mutton bones. A great many details of this story must be left to the imagination of the listener. They are too harrowing to relate. A much tenderer regard for the feelings of the audience will be shown in this than in most giant stories. We will even go so far as to state in advance that the story has a good end. 
thereby enabling listeners to regard it comfortably without unpleasant suspense. The pumpkin giant was fonder of little boys and girls than anything else in the world, but he was somewhat fonder of little boys, and more particularly of fat little boys. The fear and horror of this giant extended over the whole country. Even the king on his throne was so severely afflicted with the giant's shakes that he had been obliged to have the throne propped for fear it should topple over in some unusually violent fit. There was good reason why the king shook. His only daughter, the princess Ariadne Diana, was probably the fattest princess in the whole world at that date. So fat was she that she had never walked a step in the dozen years of her life, being totally unable to progress over the earth by any method except rolling. And a really beautiful sight it was, too, to see the princess Ariadne Diana in her cloth of gold rolling suit, faced with green velvet and edged with ermine, with her glittering crown on her head, trundling along the avenues of the royal gardens, which had been furnished with strips of rich carpeting for her express accommodation. But gratifying as it would have been to the king, her sire, under other circumstances, to have had such an unusually interesting daughter, it now only served to fill his heart with the greatest anxiety on her account. The princess was never allowed to leave the palace without a bodyguard of fifty knights, the very flower of the king's troops, with lances in rest. But in spite of all this precaution, the king shook. Meanwhile, amongst the ordinary people who could not procure an escort of fifty armed knights for the plump among their children, the ravages of the pumpkin giant were frightful. It was apprehended at one time that there would be very few fat little girls and no fat little boys at all left in the kingdom. And what made matters worse, at that time the giant commenced taking a tonic to increase his appetite. Finally, the king, in desperation, issued a proclamation that he would knight anyone, be he noble or common, who should cut off the head of the pumpkin giant. This was the king's usual method of rewarding any noble deed in his kingdom. It was a cheap method. Besides, everybody liked to be a knight. When the king issued his proclamation, every man in the kingdom who was not already a knight straightway tried to contrive ways and means to kill the pumpkin giant but there was one obstacle which seemed insurmountable. They were afraid. And all of them had the giant's shake so badly that they could not possibly have held a knife steady enough to cut off the giant's head, even if they had dared go near enough for that purpose. There was one man who lived not far from the terrible giant's castle, a poor man, his only worldly wealth consisting in a large potato field and a cottage in front of it. But he had a boy of twelve, an only son, who rivaled the Princess Ariadne Diana in point of fatness. He was unable to have a bodyguard for his son, so the amount of terror which the inhabitants of that humble cottage suffered day and night was heartrending. The poor mother had been unable to leave her bed for two years on account of the giant's shakes. Her husband barely got a living from the potato field. Half the time he and his wife had hardly enough to eat, as it naturally took the larger part of the potatoes to satisfy the fat little boy, their son, and their situation was truly pitiable. The fat boy's name was Aeneas, his father's name was Patroclus, and his mother's Daphne. It was all the fashion in those days to have classical names, and as that was a fashion as easily adopted by the poor as the rich, everybody had them. They were just like Jim and Tommy and May in these days. Why, the princess's name, Ariadne Diana, was nothing more or less than Analyza with us. One morning, Patroclus and Aeneas were out in the field digging potatoes, for new potatoes were just in the market. 
The early rose potato had not been discovered in those days, but there was another potato, perhaps equally good, which attained to a similar degree of celebrity. It was called the young Plantagenet, and reached a very large size indeed, much larger than the early rose does in our time. Well, Patroclus and Aeneas had just dug perhaps a bushel of young Plantagenet potatoes. It was slow work with them, for Patroclus had the giant's shakes badly that morning, and of course Aeneas was not very swift. He rolled about among the potato hills after the manner of the princess Ariadne Diana, but he did not present as imposing an appearance as she in his homespun farmer's frock. All at once the earth trembled violently. Patroclus and Aeneas looked up and saw the pumpkin giant coming with his mouth wide open. Get behind me, oh my darling son, cried Patroclus. Aeneas obeyed, but it was of no use, for you could see his cheeks each side of his father's waistcoat. Patroclus was not ordinarily a brave man, but he was brave in an emergency, and as that is the only time when there is the slightest need of bravery, it was just as well. The pumpkin giant strode along faster and faster, opening his mouth wider and wider until they could fairly hear it crack at the corners. Then Patroclus picked up an enormous young Plantagenet and threw it plump into the pumpkin giant's mouth. The giant choked and gasped and choked and gasped and finally tumbled down and died. Patroclus and Aeneas, while the giant was choking, had run to the house and locked themselves in. Then they looked out of the window. When they saw the giant tumble down and lie quite still, they knew he must be dead. Then Daphne was immediately cured of the giant's shakes and got out of bed for the first time in two years. Patroclus sharpened the carving knife on the kitchen stove, and they all went out into the potato field. They cautiously approached the prostrate giant, for fear he might be shamming and might suddenly spring up at them and Aeneas. But no, he did not move at all. He was quite dead. And, all taking turns, they hacked off his head with the carving knife. Then Aeneas had it to play with, which was quite appropriate, and a good instance of the sarcasm of destiny. The king was notified of the death of the pumpkin giant, and was greatly rejoiced thereby. His giant's shakes ceased, the props were removed from the throne, and the princess Ariadne Diana was allowed to go out without her bodyguard of fifty knights, much to her delight, for she found them a great hindrance to the enjoyment of her daily outings. It was a great cross, not to say an embarrassment, when she was gleefully rolling in pursuit of a charming red and gold butterfly to find herself suddenly stopped short by an armed knight with his lance in rest. But the king, though his gratitude for the noble deed knew no bounds, omitted to give the promised reward and knight Patroclus. I hardly know how it happened. I don't think it was anything intentional. Patroclus felt rather hurt about it, and Daphne would have liked to be a lady, but Aeneas did not care in the least. He had the giant's head to play with, and that was reward enough for him. There was not a boy in the neighborhood but envied him his possession of such a unique plaything. And when they would stand looking over the wall of the potato field with longing eyes, and he was flying over the ground with the head, his happiness knew no bounds. And Aeneas played so much with the giant's head, that finally, late in the fall, it got broken and scattered all over the field. Next spring, all over Patroclus's potato field grew running vines, and in the fall, giant's heads. There they were, all over the field, hundreds of them. Then there was consternation indeed. The natural conclusion to be arrived at when the people saw the yellow giant's heads making their appearance above the ground was that the rest of the giants were coming. 
There was one pumpkin giant before, said they. Now there will be a whole army of them. If it was dreadful then, what will it be in the future? If one pumpkin giant gave us the shake so badly, what will a whole army of them do? But when some time had elapsed, and nothing more of the giants appeared above the surface of the potato field, and as moreover the heads had not yet displayed any sign of opening their mouths, the people began to feel a little easier, and the general excitement subsided somewhat, although the king had ordered out Ariadne Diana's bodyguard again. Now Aeneas had been born with a propensity for putting everything into his mouth and tasting it. There was scarcely anything in his vicinity which could by any possibility be tasted which he had not eaten a bit of. This propensity was so alarming in his babyhood that Daphne purchased a book of antidotes, and if it had not been for her admirable good judgment in doing so, this story would probably never have been told, for no human baby could possibly have survived the heterogeneous diet which Aeneas had indulged in. There was scarcely one of the antidotes which had not been resorted to from time to time. Aeneas had become acquainted with the peculiar flavor of almost everything in his immediate vicinity except the giant's heads, and he naturally enough cast longing eyes at them. Night and day he wondered what a giant's head could taste like, till finally one day when Patroclus was away, he stole out into the potato field, cut a bit out of one of the giant's heads, and ate it. He was almost afraid to, but he reflected that his mother could give him an antidote, so he ventured. It tasted very sweet and nice. He liked it so much that he cut off another piece and ate that, then another and another, until he had eaten two-thirds of a giant's head. Then he thought it was about time for him to go in and tell his mother and take an antidote, though he did not feel ill at all yet. Mother, said he, rolling slowly into the cottage, I have eaten two-thirds of a giant's head, and I guess you had better give me an antidote. Oh, my precious son, cried Daphne, how could you? She looked in her book of antidotes, but could not find one antidote for a giant's head. Oh, Aeneas, my dear, dear son, groaned Daphne, there is no antidote for giant's head. What shall we do? Then she sat down and wept, and Aeneas wept too, as loud as he possibly could and he apparently had excellent reason to, for it did not seem possible that a boy could eat two-thirds of a giant's head and survive it without an antidote. Patroclus came home, and they told him, and he sat down and lamented with them. All day they sat weeping and watching Aeneas, expecting every moment to see him die. But he did not die. On the contrary, he had never felt so well in his life. Finally at sunset, Aeneas looked up and laughed. I am not going to die, said he. I never felt so well. You had better stop crying. And I am going out to get some more of that giant's head. I am hungry. Don't, don't, cried his father and mother. But he went, for he generally took his own way, very like most only sons. He came back with a whole giant's head in his arms. See here, mother and father, cried he. We'll all have some of this. It evidently is not poison, and it is good a great deal better than potatoes. Patroclus and Daphne hesitated, but they were hungry too. Since the crop of giant's heads had sprung up in their field instead of potatoes, they had been hungry most of the time. So they tasted. It is good, said Daphne, but I think it would be better cooked. So she put some in a kettle of water over the fire and let it boil a while. Then she dished it up and they all ate it. It was delicious. It tasted more like stewed pumpkin than anything else, 
In fact, it was stewed pumpkin. Daphne was inventive and something of a genius, and next day she concocted another dish out of the giant's heads. She boiled them and sifted them and mixed them with eggs and sugar and milk and spice, and she lined some plates with puff paste, filled them with the mixture, and set them in the oven to bake. The result was unparalleled. Nothing half so exquisite had ever been tasted. They were all in ecstasies, Aeneas in particular. They gathered all the giant's heads and stored them in the cellar. Daphne baked pies of them every day, and nothing could surpass the felicity of the whole family. One morning, the king had been out hunting and happened to ride by the cottage of Patroclus with a train of his knights. Daphne was baking pies as usual, and the kitchen door and window were both open, for the room was so warm. So the delicious odor of the pies perfumed the whole air about the cottage. What is it smells so utterly lovely? exclaimed the king, sniffing in a rapture. He sent his page in to see. The housewife is baking giant's head pies, said the page, returning. What? thundered the king. Bring one out to me. So the page brought out a pie to him, and after all his knights had tasted it to be sure it was not poison, and the king had watched them sharply for a few moments to be sure they were not killed, he tasted too. Then he beamed. It was a new sensation, and a new sensation is a great boon to a king. I never tasted anything so altogether superfine, so utterly magnificent in my life, cried the king. Stewed peacock's tongues from the Baltic are not to be compared with it. Call out the housewife immediately. So Daphne came out trembling, and Patroclus and Aeneas also. What a charming lad, exclaimed the king, as his glance fell upon Aeneas. Now tell me about these wonderful pies, and I will reward you as becomes a monarch. Then Patroclus fell on his knees and related the whole history of the giant's head pies from the beginning. The king actually blushed. And I forgot to knight you, O noble and brave man, and to make a lady of your admirable wife. Then the king leaned gracefully down from his saddle and struck Patroclus with his jeweled sword and knighted him on the spot. The whole family went to live at the royal palace. The roses in the royal gardens were uprooted, and giant's heads, or pumpkins as they came to be called, were sown in their stead. All the royal parks also were turned into pumpkin fields. Patroclus was in constant attendance on the king, and used to stand all day in his antechamber. Daphne had a position of great responsibility, for she superintended the baking of the pumpkin pies, and Aeneas finally married the princess Ariadne Diana. They were wedded in great state by fifty archbishops, and all the newspapers united in stating that they were the most charming and well-matched young couple that had ever been united in the kingdom. The stone entrance of the pumpkin giant's castle was securely fastened, and upon it was engraved an inscription composed by the first poet in the kingdom, for which the king made him laureate and gave him the liberal pension of fifty pumpkin pies per year. The following is the inscription in full. Here dwelt the pumpkin giant once. He's dead, the nation doth rejoice, for while he was alive, he lived by eating dear, fat little boys. The inscription is said to remain to this day. If you were to go there, you would probably see it. Our featured story is a bit of a tease for Halloween itself. It's by an author who also has something to do with pumpkin heads, or lack thereof, 
but not this particular story. Instead, Washington Irving will tell us another tale of an old miser, his wife, and the devil. Before we get into this, I need to acknowledge that here's where we begin to encounter the ugly that I was talking about last issue. A lot of these stories were written in, shall we say, less enlightened times. Irving's stories in particular were not too far removed from the formation of our country, and slavery was still very much a part of it. The story should give you an idea of Irving's views on slavery. While not actively an abolitionist, he doesn't like it. But it's how this story depicts Native Americans that I'm talking about here. My official policy on this will be that unless there's something so egregious that I need to change the text, I'm not going to mention it from here on out. I do absolutely invite commentary and discussion in the Discord server and on the Patreon. It's important that we confront and examine these things, but I still feel we can enjoy these stories even while doing so. And I wish I had the time and knowledge to do deep dive discussions on some of this stuff, but that's outside the scope of the Mayorzine. I would love to eventually be able to host roundtable discussions either as another podcast or some live events. Well, all that said, let's go meet the devil. The Devil and Tom Walker by Washington Irving A few miles from Boston in Massachusetts, there is a deep inlet winding several miles into the interior of the country from Charles Bay and terminating in a thickly wooded swamp or morass. On one side of this inlet is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge on which grow a few scattered oaks of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was a great amount of treasure buried by Kit the Pirate. The inlet allowed a facility to bring the money in a boat secretly and at night to the very foot of the hill. The elevation of the place permitted a good lookout to be kept that no one was at hand, while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. The old stories add, moreover, that the devil presided at the hiding of the money and took it under his guardianship. But this, it is well known, he always does with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-gotten. Be that as it may, Kid never returned to recover his wealth, being shortly after seized at Boston, sent out to England, and there hanged for a pirate. About the year 1727, just at the time that earthquakes were prevalent in New England and shook many tall sinners down upon their knees, there lived near this place a meager, miserly fellow of the name of Tom Walker. He had a wife as miserly as himself. They were so miserly that they even conspired to cheat each other. Whatever the woman could lay hands on, she hid away. A hen could not cackle, but she was on the alert to secure the new laid egg. Her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. They lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. A few straggling savin trees, emblems of sterility, grew near it. No smoke ever curled from its chimney. No traveler stopped at its door. A miserable horse, whose ribs were as articulate as the bars of a gridiron, stalked about a field, where a thin carpet of moss scarcely covering the ragged beds of pudding stone tantalized and balked his hunger. 
and sometimes he would lean his head over the fence, look piteously at the passerby, and seem to petition deliverance from this land of famine. The house and its inmates had altogether a bad name. Tom's wife was a tall termagant, fierce of temper, loud of tongue, and strong of arm. Her voice was often heard in wordy warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words. No one ventured, however, to interfere between them. The lonely wayfarer shrunk within himself at the horrid clamor and clapper-clawing, eyed the den of discord askance, and hurried on his way, rejoicing if a bachelor in his celibacy. One day that Tom Walker had been to a distant part of the neighborhood, he took what he considered a shortcut homeward through the swamp. Like most shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. The swamp was thickly grown with great gloomy pines and hemlocks, some of them ninety feet high, which made it dark at noonday, and a retreat for all the owls of the neighborhood. It was full of pits and quagmires, partly covered with weeds and mosses, where the green surface often betrayed the traveler into a gulf of black, smothering mud. There were also dark and stagnant pools, the abodes of the tadpole, the bullfrog, and the water snake where the trunks of pines and hemlocks lay half-drowned, half-rotting, looking like alligators sleeping in the mire. Tom had long been picking his way cautiously through this treacherous forest, stepping from tuft to tuft of rushes and roots, which afforded precarious footholds among deep sloughs or pacing carefully like a cat along the prostrate trunks of trees, startled now and then by the sudden screaming of the bittern or the quacking of a wild duck rising on the wing from some solitary pool. At length, he arrived at a firm piece of ground, which ran out like a peninsula into the deep bosom of the swamp. It had been one of the strongholds of the Indians during their wars with the first colonists. Here they had thrown up a kind of fort, which they had looked upon as almost impregnable, and had used as a place of refuge for their squaws and children. Nothing remained of the old Indian fort but a few embankments, gradually sinking to the level of the surrounding earth, and already overgrown in part by oaks and other forest trees, the foliage of which formed a contrast to the dark pines and hemlocks of the swamp. It was late in the dusk of evening when Tom Walker reached the old fort, and he paused there a while to rest himself. Anyone but he would have felt unwilling to linger in this lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it from the stories handed down from the time of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that the savages held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Tom Walker, however, was not a man to be troubled with any fears of the kind. He reposed himself for some time on the trunk of a fallen hemlock, listening to the boding cry of the tree toad and delving with his walking staff into a mound of black mold at his feet. As he turned up the soil unconsciously, his staff struck against something hard. He raked it out of the vegetable mold, and lo, a cloven skull with an Indian tomahawk buried deep in it lay before him. The rust on the weapon showed the time that had elapsed since this death blow had been given. It was a dreary memento of the fierce struggle that had taken place in this last foothold of the Indian warriors. Humph, <laughs> said Tom Walker, as he gave it a kick to shake the dirt from it. Let that skull alone, said a gruff voice. Tom lifted up his eyes and beheld a great black man seated directly opposite him on the stump of a tree. He was exceedingly surprised, having neither heard nor seen anyone approach and he was still more perplexed on observing, as well as the gathering gloom would permit, that the stranger was neither Negro nor Indian. 
It is true he was dressed in a rude half-Indian garb and had a red belt or sash swathed around his body, but his face was neither black nor copper color, but swarthy and dingy and begrimed with soot as if he had been accustomed to toil among fires and forges. He had a shock of coarse black hair that stood out from his head in all directions and bore an axe on his shoulder. He scowled for a moment at Tom with a pair of great red eyes. What are you doing on my grounds? said the black man with a hoarse growling voice. Your grounds, said Tom with a sneer. No more your grounds than mine. They belong to Deacon Peabody. Deacon Peabody be damned, said the stranger. As I flatter myself, he will be, if he does not look more to his own sins and less to those of his neighbors. Look yonder and see how Deacon Peabody is faring. Tom looked in the direction that the stranger pointed and beheld one of the great trees, fair and flourishing without, but rotten at the core, and saw that it had been nearly hewn through, so that the first high wind was likely to blow it down. On the bark of the tree was scored the name of Deacon Peabody, an eminent man who had waxed wealthy by driving shrewd bargains with the Indians. He now looked around and found most of the tall trees marked with the name of some great man of the colony, and all more or less scored by the axe. The one on which he had been seated, and which had evidently just been hewn down, bore the name of Crowninshield, and he recollected a mighty rich man of that name who made a vulgar display of wealth which it was whispered he had acquired by buccaneering. He's just ready for burning, said the black man, with a growl of triumph. You see, I am likely to have a good stock of firewood for winter. But what right have you, said Tom, to cut down Deacon Peabody's timber? The right of a prior claim, said the other. This woodland belonged to me long before one of your white-faced race put foot upon the soil. And pray, who are you, if I may be so bold, said Tom. Oh, I go by various names. I am the wild huntsman in some countries, the black miner in others. In this neighborhood, I am known by the name of the black woodsman. I am he to whom the red men consecrated this spot, and in honor of whom they now and then roasted a white man by way of sweet-smelling sacrifice. Since the red men have been exterminated by you white savages, I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. I am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers and the grand master of the Salem witches. The upshot of all which is that, if I mistake not, said Tom sturdily, you are he commonly called Old Scratch. The same at your service, replied the black man with a half-civil nod. Such was the opening of this interview, according to the old story, although it has almost too familiar an air to be credited. One would think that to meet with such a singular personage in this wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves. But Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, and he had lived so long with a termagant wife that he did not even fear the devil. It is said that after this commencement, they had a long and earnest conversation together as Tom returned homeward. The black man told him of great sums of money buried by Kid the Pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge, not far from the morass. 
All these were under his command and protected by his power, so that none could find them but such as propitiated his favor. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach, having conceived an especial kindness for him. But they were to be had only on certain conditions. What these conditions were may be easily surmised, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. They must have been very hard, for he required time to think of them, and he was not a man to stick at trifles when money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. What proof have I that all you have been telling me is true? said Tom. There's my signature, said the black man, pressing his finger on Tom's forehead. So saying, he turned off among the thickets of the swamp and seemed, as Tom said, to go down, down, down into the earth until nothing but his head and shoulders could be seen and so on until he totally disappeared. When Tom reached home, he found the black print of a finger, burnt, as it were, into his forehead, which nothing could obliterate. The first news his wife had to tell him was the sudden death of Absalom Crowninshield, the rich buccaneer. It was announced in the papers with the usual flourish that a great man had fallen in Israel. Tom recollected the tree which his black friend had just hewn down and which was ready for burning. Let the freebooter roast, said Tom. Who cares? He now felt convinced that all he had heard and seen was no illusion. He was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but as this was an uneasy secret, he willingly shared it with her. All her avarice was awakened at the mention of hidden gold, and she urged her husband to comply with the black man's terms and secure what would make them wealthy for life. However, Tom might have felt disposed to sell himself to the devil. He was determined not to do so to oblige his wife. So he flatly refused, out of the mere spirit of contradiction. Many and bitter were the quarrels they had on the subject, but the more she talked, the more resolute was Tom not to be damned to please her. At length, she determined to drive the bargain on her own account, and if she succeeded, to keep all the gain to herself. Being of the same fearless temper as her husband, she set off for the old Indian fort towards the close of a summer's day. She was many hours absent. When she came back, she was reserved and sullen in her replies. She spoke something of a black man, whom she had met about twilight, hewing at the root of a tall tree. He was sulky, however, and would not come to terms. She was to go again with a propitiatory offering, but what it was she forbore to say. The next evening she set off again for the swamp, with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her appearance. Morning, noon, night returned, but still she did not come. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, especially as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. Another night elapsed, another morning came, but no wife. In a word, she was never heard of more. What was her real fate, nobody knows, in consequence of so many pretending to know. It is one of those facts which have become confounded by a variety of historians. Some asserted that she lost her way among the tangled mazes of the swamp and sank into some pit or slough. Others, more charitable, hinted that she had eloped with the household booty and made off to some other province, while others surmised that the tempter had decoyed her into a dismal quagmire on the top of which her hat was found lying. In confirmation of this, 
it was said a great black man with an axe on his shoulder was seen late that very evening coming out of the swamp, carrying a bundle tied in a check apron with an air of surly triumph. The most current and probable story, however, observes that Tom Walker grew so anxious about the fate of his wife and his property that he set out at length to seek them both at the Indian fort. During a long summer's afternoon, he searched about the gloomy place, but no wife was to be seen. He called her name repeatedly, but she was nowhere to be heard. The bittern alone responded to his voice as he flew screaming by, or the bullfrog croaked dolefully from a neighboring pool. At length, it is said, just in the brown hour of twilight, when the owls began to hoot and the bats to flit about, his attention was attracted by the clamor of carrion crows hovering about a cypress tree. He looked up and beheld a bundle tied in a check apron and hanging in the branches of the tree, with a great vulture perched hard by as if keeping watch upon it. He leaped with joy, for he recognized his wife's apron and supposed it to contain the household valuables. Let us get hold of the property, said he, consolingly to himself, and we will endeavor to do without the woman. As he scrambled up the tree, the vulture spread its wide wings and sailed off, screaming into the deep shadows of the forest. Tom seized the checked apron, but woeful sight found nothing but a heart and liver tied up in it. Such, according to this most authentic old story, was all that was to be found of Tom's wife. She had probably attempted to deal with the black man as she had been accustomed to deal with her husband. But though a female scold is generally considered a match for the devil, yet in this instance she appears to have had the worst of it. She must have died game, however, for it is said Tom noticed many prints of cloven feet deeply stamped about the tree and found handfuls of hair that looked as if they had been plucked from the coarse black shock of the woodman. Tom knew his wife's prowess by experience. He shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the signs of a fierce clapper-clawing. Egad, said he to himself, old Scratch must have had a tough time of it. Tom consoled himself for the loss of his property with the loss of his wife, for he was a man of fortitude. He even felt something like gratitude towards the black woodman, who, he considered, had done him a kindness. He sought, therefore, to cultivate a further acquaintance with him, but for some time without success. The old blacklegs played shy, for whatever people may think, he is not always to be had for calling for. He knows how to play his cards when pretty sure of his game. At length, it is said, when Delay had whetted Tom's eagerness to the quick and prepared him to agree to anything rather than not gain the promised treasure, he met the black man one evening in his usual woodman's dress, with his axe on his shoulder, sauntering along the swamp and humming a tune. He affected to receive Tom's advances with great indifference, made brief replies, and went on humming his tune. By degrees, however, Tom brought him to business, and they began to haggle about the terms on which the former was to have the pirate's treasure. There was one condition which need not be mentioned, being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favors. But there were others about which, though of less importance, he was inflexibly obstinate. He insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service. He proposed, therefore, that Tom should employ it in the black traffic, that is to say, that he should fit out a slave ship. This, however, Tom resolutely refused. He was bad enough in all conscience, but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave trader. Finding Tom so squeamish on this point, he did not insist upon it, but proposed instead that he should turn usurer, 
the devil being extremely anxious for the increase of usurers, looking upon them as his peculiar people. To this, no objections were made, for it was just to Tom's taste. You shall open a broker's shop in Boston next month, said the black man. I'll do it tomorrow if you wish, said Tom Walker. You shall lend money at two percent a month. Egad, I'll charge four, replied Tom Walker. You shall extort bonds, foreclose mortgages, drive the merchants to bankruptcy. I'll drive them to the devil, cried Tom Walker. You are the usurer for my money, said Blacklegs with delight. When will you want the rhino? This very night. Done, said the devil. Done, said Tom Walker. So they shook hands and struck a bargain. A few days' time saw Tom Walker seated behind his desk in a counting house in Boston. His reputation for a ready-moneyed man who would lend money out for good consideration soon spread abroad. Everybody remembers the time of Governor Belcher when money was particularly scarce. It was a time of paper credit. The country had been deluged with government bills. The famous land bank had been established. There had been a rage for speculating. The people had run mad with schemes for new settlements, for building cities in the wilderness. Land jobbers went about with maps of grants and townships and Eldorados lying nobody knew where but which everybody was ready to purchase. In a word, the great speculating fever which breaks out every now and then in the country had raged to an alarming degree, and everybody was dreaming of making sudden fortunes from nothing. As usual, the fever had subsided, the dream had gone off, and the imaginary fortunes with it. The patients were left in doleful plight, and the whole country resounded with the consequent cry of hard times. At this propitious time of public distress did Tom Walker set up as usurer in Boston. His door was soon thronged by customers, the needy and adventurous, the gambling speculator, the dreaming land jobber, the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit. In short, every one driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices hurried to Tom Walker. Thus Tom was the universal friend of the needy and acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always exacted good pay and good security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms. He accumulated bonds and mortgages, gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer, and sent them at length dry as a sponge from his door. In this way he made money hand over hand, became a rich and mighty man, and exalted his cocked hat upon change. He built himself, as usual, a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished out of parsimony. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it, and as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axle-trees, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. As Tom waxed old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret on the bargain he had made with his black friend, and set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously, as if heaven were to be taken by force of lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the clamor of his Sunday devotion. 
The quiet Christians who had been modestly and steadfastly traveling Zionward were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstripped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid and religious as in money matters. He was a stern supervisor and censurer of his neighbors, and seemed to think every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. He even talked of the expediency of reviving the persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. Still, in spite of all this strenuous attention to forms, Tom had a lurking dread that the devil, after all, would have his due. That he might not be taken unawares, therefore, it is said he always carried a small Bible in his coat pocket. He also had a great folio Bible on his counting house desk and would frequently be found reading it when people called on business. On such occasions, he would lay his green spectacles in the book to mark the place while he turned round to drive some usurious bargain. Some say that Tom grew a little crack-brained in his old days, and that, fancying his end approaching, he had his horse new-shod, saddled and bridled, and buried with his feet uppermost, because he supposed that at the last day the world would be turned upside down, in which case he should find his horse standing ready for mounting, and he was determined at the worst to give his old friend a run for it. This, however, is probably a mere old wives fable. If he really did take such a precaution, it was totally superfluous. At least so says the authentic old legend, which closes his story in the following manner. One hot summer afternoon in the dog days, just as a terrible black thunder gust was coming up, Tom sat in his counting house, in his white linen cap and India silk morning gown. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage, by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. The poor land jobber begged him to grant a few months' indulgence. Tom had grown testy and irritated, and refused another day. My family will be ruined and brought upon the parish, said the land jobber. Charity begins at home, replied Tom. I must take care of myself in these hard times. You have made so much money out of me, said the speculator. Tom lost his patience and his piety. The devil take me, said he, if I have made a farthing. Just then there were three loud knocks at the street door. He stepped out to see who was there. A black man was holding a black horse, which neighed and stamped with impatience. Tom, you're come for, said the black fellow, gruffly. Tom shrank back, but too late. He had left his little Bible at the bottom of his coat pocket, and his big Bible on the desk buried under the mortgage he was about to foreclose. Never was sinner taken more unawares. The black man whisked him like a child into the saddle, gave the horse the lash, and away he galloped, with Tom on his back in the midst of the thunderstorm. The clerks stuck their pens behind their ears and stared after him from the windows. Away went Tom Walker, dashing down the street, his white cap bobbing up and down, his morning gown fluttering in the wind, and his steed striking fire out of the pavement at every bound. When the clerks turned to look for the black man, he had disappeared. Tom Walker never returned to foreclose the mortgage. A countryman, who lived on the border of the swamp, reported that in the height of the thunder gust, he had heard a great clattering of hoofs and a howling along the road and running to the window caught sight of a figure such as I have described, on a horse that galloped like mad across the fields, over the hills, and down into the black hemlock swamp towards the old Indian fort, and that shortly after a thunderbolt falling in that direction seemed to set the whole forest in a blaze. 
The good people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders, but had been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they were not so much horror-struck as might have been expected. Trustees were appointed to take charge of Tom's effects. There was nothing, however, to administer upon. On searching his coffers, all his bonds and mortgages were found reduced to cinders. In place of gold and silver, his iron chest was filled with chips and shavings. Two skeletons lay in his stable instead of his half-starved horses. And the very next day, his great house took fire and was burnt to the ground. Such was the end of Tom Walker and his ill-gotten wealth. Let all griping money brokers lay this story to heart. The truth of it is not to be doubted. The very hole under the oak trees, whence he dug kids' money, is to be seen to this day. And the neighboring swamp and old Indian fort are often haunted in stormy nights by a figure on horseback in morning gown and white cap, which is doubtless the troubled spirit of the usurer. In fact, the story has resolved itself into a proverb and is the origin of that popular saying so prevalent throughout New England of the devil and Tom Walker. Next week is another legend of horror, and talk about problematic. We'll be featuring Lovecraft in the next issue without talking about his character and very challenging legacy. That deserves a podcast in and of itself, and as it happens, there are several. Thank you for joining me for this week's issue of The Mayorzine. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.